Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. specifically here to Matthew chapter 6, uh, we are hitting a slight transition point in the sermon. It's slight because some of those big themes we've been tracing so far will certainly continue as we uh, walk through the Sermon on the Mount moving forward, uh, but there's a slight shift in the emphasis on what Jesus is focusing on here in the text. And so this morning, the, the passage that Aaron read, before we jump in, I want us to think for a moment about the idea of rewards. Right, this is a key phrase. That word shows up five times in these six verses, this idea of rewards. And so I want us to think about that for just a moment. Now, here's the thing about rewards. Uh, we all like them, right? Is anybody here like, nah, I'm not, not good on rewards? Right? Now, everybody loves a good reward, right? Uh, especially rewards that come on the back end of some really hard work, some dedication, some determination, Maybe it's related to an athletic team that you play on, uh, something related to your job or related to school. Uh, you worked really hard and you got the raise, right? You studied really hard and you got the good grade for the test. That was your reward, right? We all like that, don't we? And, of course, in order to appreciate and to experience the reward, you've got to make sure that you're training toward the right thing. Otherwise, all of your hard work could just be for waste, so here's an illustration that I can't fully relate to. I know Pastor Pat would because he's the runner of the pastoral group. Are you a runner? No. Okay. I just, I didn't want to speak for you, but I felt pretty confident saying Pastor Pat's the runner of the pastoral group. All right. So here's an illustration. Let's say you are a runner who's preparing for a 5K. You're preparing for a 5K race. And you're trying to set a new PR, a new personal time for yourself. You're trying to place in the, the top three of your age group. So for three months leading up to this 5K, right, you are uh, getting up early. You're hitting the road. You're running hard. You're perfecting those split times. You know exactly when you need to speed up and when you can rest for just a moment, right? You eat right. You're training really hard. And then the race day comes, right? The race day comes. You show up. You paid to run in this race, which baffles me, right? You paid, right? You get a t-shirt, okay? You paid, you get the t-shirt, you're running in the race, you get checked in, you get the shirt, the bib, the whole thing, and then you get to the start line, you realize that you've made a critical mistake. You are not running a 5K, but you're running a marathon. Now, all that hard work and training is going to end up with what reward? None, right? Because a, a marathon, by my math, is a 42K, right? So if you've been perfecting your 5K split times, uh, you're in deep trouble. And so here's the thing. Though your practices may look right, right, though your training, so to speak, was on point, you were actually running the wrong race. You were actually pursuing the wrong reward. Well, Jesus, in the same way, is going to give us a spiritual warning along those lines this morning. Though you might outwardly be practicing the right things, though you might outwardly be obeying Jesus, Right? Though you might be checking the right boxes, it's possible that you're actually running the wrong race. It's possible that you're chasing after the wrong reward. And you know what the scariest part is? You might not even know that it's happening. 
you might not even know that you're actually running in the wrong race. So here's our main idea this morning. Jesus warns that our motivation for righteousness and reward should come from our Father in heaven and not others. Jesus warns that our motivation for righteousness and reward should come from our Father in heaven and not others. So he will state this main idea very clearly in verse 1. So we'll spend some time there. And then he'll illustrate it by using two examples related to first giving and then secondly to praying. Good righteous activities, right, that God's people should be doing. So there's a warning in each one for us. So if you've got your copy of the scriptures, let's look back at verse 1 and dissect this idea a little further of righteousness and reward. Look back at verse 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is continuing this common theme in the Sermon on the Mount of righteousness. Right? Remember, this righteousness from what we've seen already in chapter 5, it's not just focused on doing the right things. It's not about checking the right boxes. And this will become crystal clear once again in this passage. Instead, he is calling his disciples to a greater and a truer righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious experts and kind of the teachers of the law in this time period. Now, Jesus is advocating for a righteousness that works from the inside out, a righteousness that is whole, that is full of integrity, one that is consistent between the inner motivations of our hearts and the outward actions of our hands. So Jesus says here, be careful with this topic of righteousness. Be careful that you're not practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. But if we take a step back for a moment, if you've been tracking with our series, there's a little bit of tension here. Because remember back in chapter 5, Jesus is giving the identity of salt and light to his followers, to his disciples. You know how he ends that section? Look at chapter 5, verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So we have to ask the question, which one is it, Jesus? Right? Do we show our good works or do we not show our good works? Don't you love when you come into this little contradiction here when you read the Bible? You're like, yes, now I get to figure out what to do with this. Uh, it seems on the surface to be exactly the opposite of what he said in chapter 5. So how do we make sense of this? Well, what might appear as a contradiction to us is not really a discrepancy. By the way, that's how it always works with the Word of God. What might appear to be a contradiction to us is something that we need to work out in us. There's nothing wrong with God's Word itself. The answer becomes clear when we see that Jesus is pressing down deeper than our external righteousness to the level of motivation and intention. Right? So the difference can be found by answering this question. What do we want or what do we expect from our righteous, obedient actions? What do we want to happen? What do we expect to take place by our righteousness, by doing the right things? We see in chapter 5, the motivation and the outcome in displaying our good deeds and righteousness before others is right there in the text, wasn't it? You are to show your good works to others so that they might give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus there is warning us against the temptation to hide our faith, right? To put the basket over the light, so to speak. 
to try to conceal it away from a world that desperately needs it. He's warning against the temptation to draw back when we might be in a confrontation with the dark world around us. So he says, no, no, don't draw back. Showcase your faith. Be light in dark spaces. However, in chapter 6, motivation is different. Motivation chapter 5 is, I'm going to showcase my righteousness so that you might be glorified. So that people might get a glimpse of the king and his kingdom. Well, here in chapter 6, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Better way to translate that? With the intention of being seen by them. See the difference there? This is the desire that we might be worshipped. That we might receive glory instead of God. This is a showing off of our obedience and good deeds and righteousness so that we might have an audience of the approval of our peers. So that people might look at us and say, man, look at them. Right? Look how righteous they are. Look how much they serve. Look how much they give. You fill in the blank, whatever it might be. The question to ask is, do you have a desire for God and his glory to be esteemed? Or a desire for my glory and my reputation to be esteemed? That's the tension that we're running here. Now, before you answer that question too quickly... Jesus begins this passage with a key word. Did you see what it was? He says, beware, watch out, pay attention to what I'm about to say because this is going to be an ongoing temptation for us. That's the tense of this commandment. It's an ongoing beware. Continually watch out for this. Be vigilant to see when this might be slipping into your life because Jesus says there is always a danger of our good deeds of our obedience, of our righteousness, slipping into performance for the sake of others. Slipping into the intention of being esteemed by man. So let's ask the question, why? Why does Jesus say, beware? Why do we constantly have to be on guard against this? Why would this be such a temptation for us? Well, this posture is what Dallas Willard, I think, aptly calls the respectability trap. Right? I mean, after all, don't you want to be a respectable person? Don't you want to be known as a good person? Don't you want people to like you, to look up to you, to respect you? For people to view you as someone of influence, of being very faithful in your walk with Jesus? Maybe it's in other realms. Maybe they, you want people to know you're a good employee. You want people to know you're a good friend a good parent, a good student, you fill in the blank, whatever it is. Deep down, don't we want that? Or am I the only one? Right? We crave that approval deep down. Right? We want to be acknowledged. We want to be appreciated. There's something within our hearts that craves this. We are almost addicted to it. Which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with being those things. Right? The Bible calls us, in fact, to outdo one another in showing honor. So there's moments where others might lift us up, and it's from a posture of love. To say, hey, brother, I've really seen this in your life, and I just see God moving, and that's a great thing. Or, sister, you know, I've seen you move and serve in this way, and I just want to thank you for doing that. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is, in our sinful hearts, we can so quickly distort that. It can go from a compliment that we hear and drop straight down into our hearts. And take root in ways that Jesus is saying, watch out, beware. I think uh, J.R. Vassar is helpful in diagnosing this here. He has a good little book that will mess you up in a good way called Glory Hunger. 
uh, commend it to you. I read it once a quarter because it keeps me in check. Here's what he says. If we are honest, our hearts are desperate for the praise of people. We desire to be insiders. We work hard to construct and maintain an image that we believe will impress others, earn their approval, and give us a sense of significance. We want to escape shame and shine with glory. This hunger for the glory that comes from man is so insidious that it makes its way into even the most sacred of activities and taints the motivations of nearly every action. Jesus knows that our temptation is to see life as a stage and the watching world as our audience. And listen to this last sentence. Even the most religious acts can be done with one eye on God and the other eye on people, hoping they will see that one eye on God and admire us for it. Don't you feel that temptation? Don't you feel that tug in your own life? I know that I do constantly. So as our first point of application this morning, here's what I want, I think we need to ask ourselves. Where are you tempted to showcase your righteousness? Right? Where do you feel that tug of one eye on the Lord, one eye on the people around you? Right? What are the things that you like to slip into conversations? What are the things that you want to make sure other people know about you? What tends to hit your social media feed, your Instagram page? What are those things that you like to broadcast? Now, again, there's a tension here. Some of that broadcasting can be good. But Jesus is not asking how it's affecting other people. He's asking you this morning, what's going on in your heart? What's going on at the level of your motivation and intentions? I think one commentator nailed it. I'm paraphrasing what he says here. He says, we are to show when we're tempted to hide. And we should probably hide when we're tempted to show. Let me say that again. I think that's profound. We're to show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Because that's getting down to what's driving this desire to be seen by others. Is it really God's glory or is it really something else? Is it the glory that comes from man? Here's why Jesus seems to give this warning, though. It comes at the end of verse 1. Look there again. He says, if you practice your righteousness in this way, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When we are motivated simply so that other people might see us and praise us, we have no reward from God. And that's why this is sneaky. That's why we might not even realize that this is going on in our lives, because what might seem commendable from a human perspective might be worthy of disapproval from God. And what might be insignificant from a human vantage point might be honorable and worthy of reward from God's perspective. So let's turn to that issue of reward. Because there's something there that Jesus is striking at for us. The rest of this passage, Jesus is going to use two common examples of righteousness to illustrate his point. So first, giving and second, prayer. So let's begin with this idea of giving for reputation. Giving for reputation. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus warns us not to be like the hypocrites here. 
Now, usually we define a hypocrite as someone who publicly says one thing, but then privately lives in a totally contradictory way, right? So we think of the person warning against adultery who might be committing adultery. We think of the person instructing others to be generous while being greedy themselves, telling other people to serve while the intention of their heart is to be served, right? That's kind of what we think about as a hypocrite, but that's not exactly what that word means here. You see, in the first century when the New Testament was written, a hypocrite was an actor, like in a play. That was the idea behind that word. Someone who was seen on stage, who was playing a part, but of course is not truly the person or character they were depicting. Right? They lay aside their true identity for a quote-unquote false one that they are acting and performing as. Now, of course, in the realm of acting, that's wholly acceptable, right? I mean, that's the whole point. It'd be weird if Will Smith just showed up as Will Smith in every movie. Okay, so the whole point is to assume this other identity that is not truly yours, but Jesus takes that connotation and co-ops it here. And he says, you know what the hypocrites, they're actors, right? They are this identity, but when they get on stage, there's something different. He says, that's fine in the acting realm, but when we bring that into our faith, when we bring that into our religious activity, something deeper is the problem. See, Jesus, still seemingly alluding to those scribes and Pharisees, says they are hypocritical in the sense that they do the right things, but they do them for the wrong reasons. Another way we could state this, they do the right things, but they are not the right kind of people. They are simply playing a game. They are simply actors on stage. Elsewhere, Jesus will indict them of behaving like Israel in the Old Testament. Here's what Isaiah warns in Isaiah 29. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men as opposed to the commandments of God. You see why this might be happening? We might not even know it. We're still doing the right things. We're still showing up. We're still going to city group. We're still tithing, right? We're still serving others. But Jesus says, you've got to get below that. That can't be the only measure of what's happening in your discipleship with me. They were still doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. So Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't be like the actors. Don't be like the hypocrites. They sound the trumpet, which means that they give with the intention of drawing attention to themselves, right? That they might be seen and esteemed by others. And the locations mentioned confirm that, right? These are public venues. So they give with fanfare in the synagogues. The synagogues are the closest thing in first century Judaism we have to the church today. It'd be where rabbis, such as the scribes and Pharisees, they'd stand up, they'd open the scroll of the scriptures, and they would teach to the people. It would be a public venue where they'd have an audience looking at them. Then secondly, in the streets. This could be some kind of public offering, maybe connected to the temple, or it could just simply be giving directly to beggars who were in need on the streets, which of course we see over and over again happening in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Right, this trumpet sounding is likely figurative, but the point is clear, isn't it? The aim is for the praise of men, that they may be praised by others. That word for praise, in the Greek, it's doxa. You know what that literally means? Glory. They are giving for the sake of being glorified by others. See how Jesus uses worship language here, by the way? 
He's saying this desire and craving for praise, this desire for glory, this desire for worship is ultimately misdirected. And it's ultimately going to be a stumbling block in your discipleship of me. Their aim is simply for the praise of men. But here's the thing about this. When we're desiring the praise and the glory of men and of others and those around us, the twisted thing here is that this desire really ultimately has nothing to do with them, does it? Is it really about them? No, the twisted thing about this is that our desire for the approval and the praise of others is really about us. It's not about them, it's about us. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the ultimate choice is always the choice between pleasing self and pleasing God. Ultimately, our only reason for pleasing men around us is that we may please ourselves. Our real desire is not to please others as such. We want to please them because we know that if we do, they will think better of us. In other words, we are pleasing ourselves and are merely concerned about self-gratification. That's the twisted and scary and sneaky thing about this living for the approval of others. At the end of the day, it's selfish. And so Jesus says, look, if you're giving in public, which by the way, he's not saying don't give at all, right? We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. He's not saying never give in public, but he's saying if you give in public for the expressed purpose of being praised by others, guess what? You've already received your reward, which means this, what they wanted, they got. God looks and says, if that's what you want, I will give it to you. This is the Romans one language. God gave them up to their desires. So what they wanted was people to recognize them, people to esteem them, people to point to them as good examples. And that's all that has happened here. There's nothing more. They might receive the applause and the admiration of others, but their father does not see them. The account is closed, so to speak. Nothing more is owed. Jesus is saying as clearly as he can, there is no reward from God for those who seek it from man. And that ought to be a scary reality for us, isn't it? There is no reward from God for those who seek it from others. Here's the thing about that reward, though. See how fragile it is and really how insignificant it is? Right? We tend to be drawn to this approval of man and this glory that comes from them. And at the end of the day, how much is that really worth? Right? It's paper thin. It's shallow. Because, I mean, honestly, if we think about it, that can be taken away in a moment, can it? How, do the crowds always maintain the same opinion of people? Especially in our day and age of social media, right? It can change like that. All of a sudden, all these good deeds you stacked up can be gone in a moment. Because guess what? You're not perfect. And you will not be able to keep up that facade in front of others. And by the way, that's exhausting. And that's what Jesus is trying to call us out of. He's trying to say there's a better way to live than the way that the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites are living. The opinion of others is so easily swayed elsewhere. And it really is no reward at all. So Jesus says instead, his disciples should pursue a different kind of righteousness. In pursuit of a different kind of reward. Look at verse 3. But when you give, there it is, by the way. Okay, so in case you're wondering, well, if I can't get good motives, do I ever give? It still says when you give. Uh, that's the scriptures talking, not your pastor, right? When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I think we tend to think of giving in two ways. 
But I think Jesus is actually presenting a third way for us here. He says there's three ways to give. The first one, you can give in order to be seen and praised by others. That's what we saw in verse 2. You can give simply to be seen by them. Or, secondly, you can give in secret, but all the while you are quietly congratulating yourself. That's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 3. By not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he's not speaking literally there. He's not saying let this side of your body just be totally ignorant of what's happening on this side. Like, make sure your left hand drops it in the offering box and not the right and keep that clean. Right? We'd never give if that was the case. That's foolishness. It's an expression. What he's saying is don't give with this intent of patting yourself on the back. Don't give with this sort of patronizing, man, just a good person helping take care of some needs. He's saying, no, no, don't give in secret while letting your ego balloon up within you. Don't give while patting yourself on the back for how generous of a person you are. Don't give full of self-congratulations on the inside. Because let's call this what it is. When you give in this way, you're not giving to help someone in need. You're not giving to see God's kingdom advance or to see a particular local church flourish and thrive. No, you're giving for yourself. You're giving for yourself. And Jesus is warning that our hearts are so sinful and twisted that we need to take an extra measure here. Even when we overcome that approval of man, you've got to look inward and say, all right, am I even twisting my own heart to puff myself up in this moment? He says, our hearts are so just deceitful in that way. We've got to take that extra measure to deal with that issue in our hearts. So I think, again, we ought to ask the question, where are we prone not just to showcase our righteousness, but where are we prone to that self-congratulations? Where do we act in such a way that's righteous, but we do so full of pride and self-assurance and satisfaction internally? Now, Jesus is warning us that's also improper. So if we're not to give to be seen by others, and we're not to give to be full of self-congratulations, what's the third option? Well, it's simply this. We give to please our Father in heaven. We give to an audience of one. We give directly to God himself. Jesus reminds us that where the world might not recognize our generosity, right, or what our generosity might cost us, the world might never have access to that, but guess what? God sees us in secret. The God of the universe, who is all-knowing and all-seeing, knows what's happening. Right? We can give for an audience of one, not simply to gain a reputation. But I don't miss this. The only way that we can give in this third option is if we understand the gospel. If we don't understand the gospel, if we don't know the security that we have in Jesus, we will always be giving for the approval of others or to try to prove ourselves worthy. Because here is the good news of the gospel. In all of our attempts to justify ourselves, using others, even internally stacking up our good deeds, God looks at that and says, no, 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 I've taken care of it. Right? Don't forget what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. We want to figure out how to give in the third way. That truth has got to sink deeply into our hearts and our souls. That though we are undeserving, that's 2 Corinthians 8. Though we are undeserving, Paul says, listen, God, Jesus, left the riches of heaven on a rescue mission after you. And it cost him everything. But guess what? Now, you've been brought back into the family. 
You've been saved. You've been declared righteous. All of your sin canceled. And now, because of that, we just give freely as a response to our Father who is well pleased with us on the merits of Jesus Christ. And when we give in this way, not only does God see us, he will reward us. And we can get wary, especially as good Protestants, right? We can get real wary of gifts and rewards and things related to salvation, can't we? Here's the thing. The New Testament over and over again says to pursue a reward from God. There is nothing wrong with that statement. The Bible over and over again calls us, look to the proper reward. Look to what will be spent in eternity. So what is our reward here? Well, this is a reward that will not be felt fully in this life. At least not in our terms and not in the ways that we like necessarily. But here's what our reward is. It's the riches of eternity spent with our Father in heaven. It's realizing that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven by grace alone, both now and forevermore. This is the true and lasting reward. Jesus is going to say later, store up treasures in heaven, in that kingdom. Invest in the life that is to come. And by the way, that will change your life right now. It might not give you wealth, health, and happiness, but it will give you a sense of, man, I am loved by God. The deepest parts of me have been saved by Jesus. And that's what each of us in this room needs. So we are to give in secret to an audience of one. And our reward is with our Father in heaven. But secondly here, he warns us against praying for recognition. Praying for recognition. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Similar language, one word that's a little different here. He says they love to stand in the synagogues and the street. Their heart's affections are drawn to this idea of the glory and praise of others coming toward them. Their affections are drawn to it and then their actions follow. This is why Jesus will later indict them in Matthew 23 of this. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. You see what the motivation of their heart is to be seen and esteemed by others. Here's your word of the day, phylacteries. Everybody together? Phylacteries. Excellent. These are small little cued boxes. They're made of leather. They contain scripture. And you wear them on the arm and on the forehead. They took literally something that was stated in Deuteronomy. And apparently, Jesus says, they enlarged these boxes, which would have drawn more attention to themselves. They wear their fringes long. Those fringes were attached to their garments as a reminder for people to obey the commandments. And the more fringes you had, the more holy you were seen by others. And so Jesus says, this is what they love. And so guess what? That is their reward. He says, great, if you want the praise of man, then you can have the praise of man. But here's the scariest thing, right? The recognition of others is why they are praying in the first place. So God doesn't even listen to their prayers. Because after all, they're not praying to God anyways. They're praying to themselves. Famous story in Luke 18, it's the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who go to the temple to pray. 
if you look at the language there, the tax collector is just beaten down. He says, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of grace and mercy. God hears his prayer and answers it. The Pharisee goes and he prays. In the Greek, it's a little, he prays to himself. God, I'm such an obedient follower of you. Thank you for not making me like a tax collector. God doesn't answer that prayer because it's not even directed to him in the first place. And so Jesus says, you are to be different. Look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says, when you want to pray, go into a room. That word room can mean any place inside a building with no doors or windows. He's basically saying, go into the most private place that you can find in a building or in your home and pray there. Here in Florida, if a hurricane comes through, what room are you bunkering down in? Jesus says, go there. Go there, close the door, and then pray. Why, why such extreme measures, right? Well, you know who else prayed this way? Jesus himself, right? In the Gospels, over and over again, there's needy crowds. People are in need of the gospel. They're in need of healing. And Jesus withdraws to the mountainside and communes with his father. Jesus himself prays in private and communes with God. Now, Jesus, of course, doesn't mean we never pray in public. But I will say this, if you're only praying in public, that probably should confront you somewhere. If we're only praying to be seen by others, and if we're prone to make it a show, maybe it's best you don't and you go get in your closet and close the door behind you. Because here's the thing, though you might be walled off from the watching world, Though no one might ever know that you're there. Though that righteous action might be totally obscure. No one might even know that you're doing it. You know who does? is your father. God sees you in secret. He sees you when no one else does. And his reward is communion and friendship with himself. We get the ear of the creator and sustainer of the universe. And we lose that ear when we make prayer a public spectacle or when we pray to ourselves. We lose the only reward that really matters. So, brothers and sisters, the bottom line is this. Do you want to live to impress others, to impress yourself, or do you want to please your father? I've asked you a lot of questions. I think that cuts to the heart of it. Do you want to impress others? Do you want to impress yourself? Or do you want to please God who is in heaven? Jesus is crystal clear. You can't have it both ways. But the question that I'm not sure we've answered yet and that all of us ought to be feeling is how? How can I do that? I feel that tug. I feel that tension of one eye on God, one eye on others. I feel the doubleness of my heart. My motivations are torn in two directions. How in the world do we actually do this? Well, here, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel. Jesus says that we actually can and we should live righteously in the way that he's saying here. Remember, Jesus and his disciples should pursue this different righteousness and this different reward because... They are a different kind of people. But what is it that's different? I think there's a key phrase, not only in this passage, but in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, 
that solved this for us. The key phrase is this. Jesus is over and over and over again drawing our attention to this phrase. You have a father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, we have a father who is in heaven. You know what breaks the stranglehold of our desire for the approval of others? The approval of our father. Right? And God's a perfect father. I know that all of us in this room have imperfect fathers, even if they're great, right? But God is a perfect father. And you know how a father who is perfect loves his kids? Perfectly. He's crazy about them. He loves them. He loves blessing them. He loves talking to them. He loves spending time with them. He loves hearing about their day, right? He loves answering their prayers. He loves giving them good gifts. We have a father who is in heaven, which means this. We don't need the praise of others because on the basis of Jesus Christ, we've been brought into that family, right? Which is why this is a lasting reward. It's not up to you. It's not up to your goodness. It's not up to your giving. It's not up to your praying. Jesus has done all of that perfectly where we did not. And now Jesus looks at us. He says, I have loved you. I've died on the cross for you. I was raised three days later to conquer the stranglehold of sin on your life. And guess what? I have brought you back to your father. And I am your brother. And when we know that that approval is there, man, that breaks the stranglehold of the approval of others and this desire to prove ourselves. If you are here and you are a child, which is all of you some way, shape, or form, right? If you are here and you are a child, you didn't earn that role. You didn't pre-birth go, all right, June 30th, 1990, here we go. I'm going to enter the world, right? It is all grace. It is all the actions of another. And it is the basis of Jesus that we have this. God revels in his children. If we really grasp this, it would change everything for us. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says as we close. He says, if you are persuaded in your own soul that what you believe and what you do are acceptable to God, whether they are acceptable to man or not is a very small consequence. You are not man's servant. You do not look to man for your reward, and therefore you need not care what man's opinion may be in this matter. Be just and fear not. Tread in the footsteps of Christ and follow what may. And hear this good news. Live not on the breath of men. Let not their applause make you feel great, for perhaps then their silence will make you feel faint. Let no man in this respect domineer over you, but let Christ be your master and look to his smile. God is smiling at us through Christ. We are undeserving of that smile. When that takes deep roots in our hearts and in our souls, and that approval and reward of our Heavenly Father becomes more important than the approval and reward of man, we're beginning to get it. We're beginning to live in a way that Jesus calls his disciples to do so. This is what it means to be changed into new people as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So this morning, let's, if you're here in Christ, repent of the ways we've sought to show our righteousness for the sake of being seen by others. Let's turn back to our Father in heaven who sees us in secret and rewards us. Let's run the right race to the proper reward, the one that will last for eternity.
And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, if he's not your savior, if you don't know God as your father, anybody can get in on that. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So you're here for a reason this morning. I'd encourage you where you're at, consider praying to your father maybe for the first time. He desires to know you. He desires to talk with you. He desired it so much, he sent his son to die for you. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us.